Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armin Agbali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Twixon comes to television. Ubisoft is into watermarks and uh, basketball. Also, John Carmack wants to sell you comics. Naughty Dog is coming a part of the scenes, and we follow a trail of Reese's Pieces right before the dump. Plus, we're talking about usable design. We have Anatoly Chen from Xbox User Research and Kate Craig talking about environment design and Gone Home. And we visit the new accessibility arcade at the University of Toronto. But first, Twix on! Twix on! So that stands for This Week in Xbox News because we haven't done this in months. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) It is a weekly feature that we do once every couple months. Right. Uh, Or it used to be weekly. Yeah. We can pretend. (laughs) Uh, In a bout of weird timing, speaking of timing, uh, a month after Xbox's new head, Phil Spencer, announced that there was a renewed focus on gaming at uh, the Xbox Corporation, they've unveiled their full lineup of television shows. (laughs) So this is, I mean, Xbox has always had a thing with TV. I mean, they they had a couple, they were the first to have TV shows of the three consoles. They were really the first to kind of have that full entertainment Yeah, like, a, like a media in. apps, and yeah. they did 1 versus 100, uh, which was sort of like, a ga- like an interactive game show they did on Xbox Live. And they, they did like live versions of that whole thing, where like you could win actual plot prizes right, by right. playing 1 People version. were contestants in the, you know, people from Xbox Live were contestants. They were pulled from the pool of whoever was watching the thing. There was also, you could, at least for a while in the best Netflix watching experience watch Netflix with other people over the internet with kind of an MST3K style silhouette couch uh, which got pulled because of Reasons. contracts and rights and whoever uh, and of course they produced a 343 Industries related Halo show like a mini series last year that apparently wasn't that bad yeah I heard decent things but yeah they don't have any real TV experience um, but Microsoft has now hired heavy hitters to take its p- to take up for that. That's Nancy Tellum, um, previously pre- uh, president of CBS Studios, is now president of Microsoft Entertainment, and Jordan Levin, former CEO of Warner Brothers, is in a senior position on the pr- on the project. Uh, he was at Warner Brothers while Buffy was huge, so presumably that's part of his. Uh resume or whatever uh the shows themselves don't seem that exciting they kind of seem stopgappy um there's a new halo show executive produced um breeden has nothing to do with steven spielberg uh, as well as a digital halo feature uh whatever the hell that means produced by ridley scott because that spells quality uh I, okay i mean let's let's be honest the last thing that steven spielberg executive produced he basically came in for a weekend and said, oh, dinosaurs. <laughs> That'd be really, like, we have this time travel story, but you, what you're really missing is dinosaurs. Uh, uh, Every Street United is a reality show about finding the best street soccer player with a finale in Rio de Janeiro during the World Cup. Sure. Read cheap. Uh, Humans is a sci-fi show based on a Swedish program about highly advanced robots who work as domestic servants so highly advanced they're indistinguishable from humans. Read cheap. Cheap. <laughs> <laughs> There's a documentary about technology and the way it's affected the physical world, which is actually the um, you know the ET, about the ET dig we've we talked about before and we'll talk about again in a bit, as well as a live stream of Bonnaroo. What's a Bonnaroo? Oh, it's a music fe- a popular music festival enjoyed by forty year olds. Okay, so these are the confirmed shows. Also in the docket is a reality show about scary jobs, a cop show based on a Warren Ellis book, a comedy variety show, a plot based improv show. And a show based on Gears of War, Forza, Save Decay, Age of Empires, and Fables. They're basically like taking all of their <laughs> own properties and saying, who can make this into something that people would watch? If I put, if you ask me to put $5 right now, they're going to make that State of the Decay, Decay show. Even though nobody cares about State of Decay, it's a Walking Dead ripoff waiting to happen. <laughs> Do they actually own State of Decay? Yes. That was I, a first party title. 
I did not realize. That's, well, good for them. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, real- so, yeah, reality shows, documentaries, and low-budget sci-fi. So, I don't, like, this seems like a, could be a, this seems like perhaps not the best place to focus their efforts. I understand why. Um, the the heads of, like, Microsoft is a giant company. Like, it's it's unfathomable how large it is versus the, the, the sheer, the, the, the relative smallness of the Xbox division. Um in the mass of that company. And by comparison to things like Microsoft Office, Xbox doesn't sell that well. It right. doesn't... It's not the big blockbuster that lands... Not everyone has an Xbox. Exactly. It's not... Again, everybody uses Word. The entire universe doesn't, you know, play video games on Xbox. So... It's more of a prestige project, honestly. Exactly. So they're trying to make this something that everyone should own, and they're trying to compete with the Apple TV and Chromecast, which are unfortunately $400 cheaper than an <laughs> Xbox uh, TV. Right. And pretty much, you know, TVs nowadays, smart TVs have Netflix and Amazon streaming built in. Microsoft wants to have a uniquely attractive box, and that makes sense. However, I'm pretty sure these aren't the shows that would do it. No, you'd have to, like... Like, Amazon is getting in on TV. Hulu are get, is getting Am- in on TV. Amazon just spent $300 million to stream old HBO shows. Yeah. Netflix, Netflix dropped $50 million on season one of House of Cards. An episode of Game of Thrones, on average, costs $6 million to make. This is not going to help them. This is this is too cheap. Like this is your and the problem is a lot of these are just really focused on the pre the audience they already have. I mean, like the who these no, are young male shows. Yeah, like these are guys who would already buy an Xbox. I can't like I can't envision this spreading the Xbox One beyond its original user base. I can't imagine it fitting a um. A, like a more family demographic because look everyone needs to grab around the tv and watch this thing this is looks more like we need to find uh, find ways to make people watch tv through their xbox because the controls don't work well right it's it's really weird and the, and like the demo and the money it's like if you're going to go to town go in a lincoln you know yeah you need to if you're not going to drop significant money on these shows you need to take the risk if you want to get the reward and these seem like really low risk ventures in that i'm sure the core demographic of xbox would be really into a halo show or reality show about shark tamers or whatever yeah you know or a soccer show like that's probably going to sell really well to the xbox core demo but that's not going to get anybody outside of that demo yeah it's like when this uh when discovery channel does shark week i mean who cares about Shark Week? It's just it's just a thing that gets everyone who hasn't. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll watch for Discovery cool Channel. Jay cares about Shark Week. LL, His yeah. head is like a shark fin. Shark <laughs> fin. Shark fin. I think we have to pay rights to Deflucy now. <laughs> pay royalties to LL Cool J. So long as we're talking about the ocean and something that's potentially sterling, um, let's talk about Josh Olin's sterling reputation. Yes, Josh Olin. Uh, the community manager over at Turtle Rock Studios, uh, developers of Evolve, formerly the developers of Left 4 Dead, uh, have has been let go of the company after a series of tweets commenting about the current situation relating to Donald Sterling. It was a series of tweets? I thought it was one tweet. It, that... was, uh, it was a couple tweets. It was a handful of tweets. Okay. Uh, uh, Sterling, if you may have heard, is the was the owner, or is the owner, actually, of the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team, and I know nothing about the rest of this. Um, well, he was... Okay, so he he made a bunch of basically that guy made a bunch of racist remarks. Um, so his uh, uh, about his girlfriend. Um, well, he well, his girlfriend's black, and he said, "Hey, don't take pictures of black friends, and don't bring black people to the game." That black friend was Magic Johnson, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> one of the greatest basketball players in in history. So um, that guy's racist. Um, if you can't tell, super super racist. He actually done other racist things. I, I read up on it, but that we won't get into that. Uh, yeah, yeah, but like. There's a, he's been banned from the NBA. He can. They're looking to sell his team to Magic Johnson. 
So which would be pretty great. Yeah. And uh, he'll be fined $2.5 million. And in response to this, Olin thought that the right thing to tweet would be, here's an uh, Josh Olin, who is a community manager at Turtle Rock. Um, here's an unpopular opinion. Donald Sterling has the right, as any American, to be a bit old bigot in the security of his own home. He's a victim. That's wrong. Later, but... he defended himself by tweeting, when you were raised in an era where segregation was perceived as right, that will stick with some people. Doesn't make him a monster. I don't know. Being uh, racist... Kind of makes you a monster. A little bit. Just a bit. <laughs> Owen anyway. has made it clear he wasn't necessarily defending Sterling's remark, just his right to hold him. Uh, Owen has also told Polygon the situation is developing with regards to his rep- employment at Turtle Rock, but uh, Turtle Rock's PR says he is no longer with the company. So, so ironically, he's getting fired for exactly what he's getting mad at. Which is kind of beautiful. It's funny. But um, the... Um, I don't know. It's just... This is not the place to to dis- display that opinion. No. You're, you're at a PR company. You already have to be careful. Like, you should be smart enough not to... At the very least... Like, totally. Sure. You can espouse the opinion that... Um, you can totally espouse... He has... The, no, no. This, this Donald Sterling guy has the right to espouse the opinion that he thinks that black people shouldn't be in photos mm. and shouldn't be represented alongside him. But he, he also has the we right... We have the right to, to enforce consequences this, upon that. Yeah. He's in the, no way a victim. And this... the Olin should have been well aware of that defending this guy was not going to be good for his job. He's in a job in which communication matters. Mm-hmm. And we sort of... You know, we kind of witch hunt people who are racist and bigots in this time of age, which is actually pretty good because it's a pretty good thing to witch hunt for. But, um, but, like, okay, so there's the Voltaire-Sartre thing that you should be able to say whatever you want. But there's also the, the thing where I that means I can also criticize you for saying that thing. It doesn't mean you get away free. Yeah, it's – there's no space for people who harm others, especially in an industry where we're already dealing with bigotry, like, every week, sort of. Yeah. There's this... no need to bring new stuff into it. Uh, we were doing pretty okay with racism before, I think. Yeah. I mean, in the industry, still mostly white dudes. Yeah. But, I mean, thankfully, slowly that's changing. And also, we've started to see um, more women and more uh, ethnic diversity. It's just uh, we really don't Don't need need this. Yeah. Speaking of things that we don't necessarily need. (laughs) John Carmack wants to make a VR comic? Store. Okay, comic store. So... As a side project of Oculus, Carmack is using the recently released Marvel API to build a virtual comic store with with every issue from the last 75 years. But apparently that doesn't matter because he's in hot water. Yeah, some legal trouble. Um, it so-, so id Software owner Zenimax Media, Carmack's previous employer, has accused him of stealing technology and taking it with him in his move to Oculus. Apparently, while at Zenimax, Carmack was doing his own R&D on VR tech, uh, meaning it belonged to the company and not him. Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, Carmack allegedly contacted Oculus founder uh, Palmer Lucky in uh, 2012 while he was a student researching VR. After receiving an early prototype of the headset, Carmack developed software and uh, tech key to success. As he was technically still an employee of Zenimax, this was all t- uh, Zenimax property. The company allegedly began seeking compensation for the use of their tech in August 2012, uh, but probably after the Facebook acquisition, there's a lot more money to be had out of that. Yeah, no, the... Um, the uh, now... Carmack claims that none of this stuff has ever made it into the Oculus code. He says there's not one line of code in Oculus that ever came from his time at Zenimax. Um, He literally says on Twitter, no work I have ever done has ever been patented. Zenimax owns the code that I wrote, but they don't own VR. Um, 
ZeniMax has sent legal notices to Oculus accusing them of IP theft and demanding reparations. I don't know how these things usually go. I don't think this is one that's going to get settled out of court because I'm pretty sure Oculus is pretty, you know, strict on them owning their own tech. And ZeniMax is probably pretty strict on getting some of that Facebook cash. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Facebook is the one to just take it out of the picture. But I think that overall, this is uh, this is going to be a tricky situation. I can't imagine this is going to be a, at least a minor setback too. This is oh, sorry. I can't imagine this is this is going to be a bit of a tricky situation. I can't imagine this being anything but a setback to uh, the development of Oculus. Yeah. Uh, speaking of weird setbacks. Uh, if you are planning on using the PS4 share feature on Ubisoft's recent game, Child of Light, then you best remember that game belongs to Ubisoft, and don't you forget it. So, apparently, the thing on Child of Light is, uh, if you want to take screenshots or videos, um, everything is going to have the Ubisoft logo on it. Yeah, tiny, it's it's small, it's, it's a watermark in the corner, it's fairly translucent you can you know it's not like hiding the screen or anything um but previous ubisoft games that allowed screenshots and video sharing like assassin's creed 4 and trials revolution don't have the watermark a handful of vita games do have the watermark um but it's usually with copyright info not logos yeah um so i mean it's not much to get outraged about i can i guess it is a small thing i can understand it from they want to protect their ip rights they want to advertise with it but at the same time, it does present the game in a way the developers didn't intend, and it sort of turns any fun screenshot you want to take into advertising. Yeah, it makes it it adds a weird um, officiality to anything that you do, as if like you are you the player are suddenly working for their PR team. Yeah, it it feels uncomfortable. Like I don't think it's going to help them, you know, control their IP in any way, shape, or form. Like nobody's looking at this game and thinking it's anything else. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, and anytime they're going to see... It's such a distinct art style, too. I mean, how could you... Like, you see that, and it's clearly Child of Light. Right. And I may, they might be thinking, like, oh, anybody who doesn't know about Child of Light, who sees this screenshot post on Facebook, that'll probably be posted with, you like, know, the name, hey, Child of Light's a great game. You know, they're doing... Posting screenshots of your PR work for you. No really need to put these watermarks on it. it. Again, it's not a big deal, but as the hippie, beardo, hippie, weirdo that I am, <laughs> I still feel uncomfortable about it. Yeah, it's... I mean, I think... It's probably not that big a deal, especially since this only comes out if you're using, you're specifically using the PS4 watermarks, uh, the PS4 uh, images. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if future games on Xbox One have something like this. Yeah. But... Uh, and I mean, the video stuff, this actually is also apparently through the live stream feature as well. Yeah. So anything you, not necessarily true about Xbox One DVR, but definitely PS4 uh, Twitch live streaming. Which I... That's in- I mean I don't see why. I mean that <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily something to get that crazy over, but it does I seem think, like uh, un- completely unnecessary. If you want someone to go crazy over, check out uh, Jonathan Blow's Twitter profile because oh, of, he, he of course not- he was very mad about it. Yes, as you might expect. Okay, so speaking of things to get crazy over, it looks like E.T. lives! Lives! Uh, So rumor has it that after the catastrophic failure of the Atari 2600 E.T. the Extraterrestrial game, uh, Atari buried every copy they had of the game in a landfill in New Mexico. They paid millions of dollars for the license in 1982 and rushed out a terrible game for a Christmas deadline. I believe Howard Scott Warshaw made that game in two weeks. Yeah, no, that game is absolutely terrible. It's impossible to play. And they were, for some reason, so excited to get it out there that they made more copies of E.T. than they had Atari 2600 for sale. Yeah, and there were more copies of Atari in production than there were Atari's sold. Which They were hoping that, hey, this movie's popular. It's going to sell a bunch of consoles. And it didn't because it was terrible. No, it was actually really, really bad. Yeah. So the um, now there, this, there was this rumor. 
or apparently it was a rumor. It was an urban legend. Yeah. And as part of a upcoming, uh, as we mentioned before, documentary, a the fabled Alamogordo landfill was dug up and they found cartridges. Full ET cartridges, boxes, inserts, and all found in the landfill along with other 2600 games, which is pretty sweet. And also apparently Atari just used dumping grounds when they were afraid of... Uh, why did they even dump them? I guess not to be taxed on them? Yeah, well, it's just like it's it costs a lot of money to actually store that stuff for a prolonged period of time. I mean, like their options was, okay. Yeah, a re- warehouse or, or the trash. Yeah, so it was like, okay, do we find this? Um, do we Retailers aren't going to sell, take these copies of Centipede and E.T., so we might as well just pour it all into a landfill where hopefully they'll just be forgotten. Now, the interesting thing is that this is not so much an urban legend as it is a fact because, <laughs> I mean... There was a New York Times article that came out when this happened. You can go back and look up. And um, apparently they had one of the Atari guys on scene and they asked him, so did you guys do this? And he said, yes. It's like, wait, did no one ask you? Like, no, this is just, this is is what we do. Yeah, we we did. Uh, director Zach Penn was excited, mildly disappointed, but excited. Quote, if we had found absolutely nothing, that would have been the point of the documentary. What would have sucked is if we dug up some stuff and there was no E.T. games. I'm glad that didn't happen. That would have been really funny if it turned out to be just all these copies of uh, Centipede and Adventure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they buried everything else here. You're looking for a landfill in New Jersey. <laughs> You're looking for my mom's house. The That's... best the best part of the story, as we were talking before the show, is that uh, Ready Player One author Ernest Klein drove up in a DeLorean that he had apparently borrowed from George R.R. R. Martin, which is the <laughs> best just sentence in the English language, I think. That's a really great way to show up to an event, I think, is to have... To not only have the high-tech equipment of 1980, but to have it loaned to you from the creator of Game of Thrones. You know, if you actually uh, put an AT cartridge on the hood of a DeLorean and go at 88 miles an hour, the car explodes. <laughs> Out of sheer rejection just of the, the e- Just the failure of both those machines. <laughs> There's a great, actually, Jerry Seinfeld. He does the Coffee with Comedians, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he does an episode where he goes uh, with Patton Oswalt. Um, Pan Oswalt with uh, Lorian, and Lorian breaks down five minutes into the drive because the, that car is garbage. Oh man! And then he reveals that he has a second Delorean just in case. Just think, listen, I this happens when you own a Delorean, you run out of Delorean. <laughs> You're gonna need a second Delorean. <laughs> so as basically what we're saying is that kids, don't buy a Delorean. Don't buy. Don't, don't, buy a don't play ET. Don't buy a Delorean. Stay safe. Stay in school. Don't do drugs. <laughs> Well, speaking of things not to do, it looks like staying at Naughty Dog is not a thing that people are interested in these days. Yeah, this week, uh, Naughty Dog's lead character artist, Michael Nowland, has left the company, leaving for uh, Parts Unknown. He was with the studio for three years and is best known for his work on The Last of Us. He uh, was it. He was working on Uncharted Four before his departure, like an ever-growing list of Naughty Dog alumni. Yeah, a few weeks ago, we reported that Amy Hennig, Uncharted's creative director and series creator, left the company after a rumored falling out. She has since landed at Visceral Games, working on their new Star Wars title. Uh, more recently, Justin Richmond, uh, from Uncharted Four's game director, has left for Riot Studios, developer of League of Legends. Which, by the way, that's a really weird switch. Yeah, that is a completely different genre of game. That just has nothing to do with one another. Yeah. Um, less reported, but uh, dialogue. Supervisor James Barker has also recently left the company, according to his LinkedIn page that says he has stopped working with them since April 2014. I this is I, I can't. There's a couple of reasons why this might happen. So one is they've entered a new phase. I mean, consider that Naughty Dog Naughty Dog is making Uncharted Four. This is a game that they've made so many times already. Um, there's only so much they can do. This is not the new innovative property that they're working on. Um, 
I doubt anyone's being pushed out of the company, but maybe it just seems like a good time. Like, I think um, Bungie has also had a series of leave, uh, leaves recently, and it's just because, you know what? Destiny is mostly done. They're not doing... Now they're in for the long haul. They're not going to be doing new mm-hmm. Destinies for a while. So those guys are leaving. Yeah. With But these are all long-time employees. Yeah, these, are all... these, these aren't like new freelancers or contractors they brought in. What's really getting me about this is that also, and I forgot to note down, mm-hmm. Uncharted 4 has apparently received some sort of creative shift in that the only voice actor associated with the project who isn't Nolan North, the guy who narrated the first, like, teaser trailer, yeah. is has been recast and all of his lines apparently rewritten. Yeah. So the game is now totally different, apparently. The, which weird thing to do in the middle of development, I suppose. <laughs> um, the yeah. game is supposed to be out uh, next year. Well, I don't know. We we these games take a while, and the those those early announcements are always they presume too much into of how yeah. quickly they can produce. But I don't know, like. That's, this game's going to be fine as a 200-person sure. team, Yeah, there's no, there's no reason to worry about Uncharted 4. That's not really what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is what the heck's happening that they are just, like, uh, like they're not f- being fired. They're leaving. Top-level talent is leaving. I, I wonder what, I mean, Neil Druckmann hasn't left, and he's No, the, but he's, he is, but according to rumors, he is now head of the Uncharted 4 project. Yeah, and he'll be also doing whatever, presumably whatever Last of Us 2, we haven't announced that, but that's that's probably in the worst. The Last of Us 2 turns out there was more of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the more of us. That'd actually be, that'd be a great name for that game. Um, but the, um, It's definitely the name of my YouTube parody. <laughs> um, but... It'd be, I think it's going to be really interesting when someone actually has, like, the NDs, these NDAs runs out, or at least someone is willing to talk off, uh, off, off the, the record. record. Yeah, just somebody, in two years, when somebody gets unfettered access to these guys, it's going to be great. Yeah. Unfortunately, nobody's willing to talk right now. Yeah, no, this is a, this is something that would be interesting down the line, and it, it can put this in context with, like, Sony Santa Monica, which is falling apart. Yeah, like, just huge layoffs in uh, February. They laid off something like 200 people. Naughty Dog is another first-party developer, and they—I don't know—with with all this talent leaving, I don't know why. I mean, like it's well, so, well, Sony's losing a ton of money. Yes, Sony is in like they just sold off all their shares in Square Enix. Yeah, um, they have recently sold off their headquarters. They're looking to make scratch, and I believe there's still millions of dollars in debts. Yeah, I mean, the PlayStation division hasn't exactly been doing, especially during the PlayStation 3 era, was not doing well. It's it's not like they're, the PlayStation 3 division is the only successful division. Oh, yeah. It's the only one turning in. It might not be turning a profit, but it's definitely getting in positive revenues. As opposed to, like, the TV division, where they're just making way too many versions of that same um, Bravia television. And that Samsung was... is laughing at them from across the ocean. Yeah, pretty much. And their phones haven't been a big success, um, especially that PlayStation phone. So... Um, that whole thing has, their, their enterprises have not been in ship shape. Yeah. So it, I mean, it's understandable that there might be some layoffs going on, but these are departures, not layoffs. Yeah. There's something weird going on at Naughty Dog. Well, that's it for news. This week, we were talking about usable design, but not in the way you think. We have one last interview from PAX with Anatoly Chen. He was on a panel for user research on the last day of the show. I'm Anatoly Chen, and I'm a user research for the Xbox natural user interface platform team. So, user research is a bit of a confusing term. First of all, it's not playtesting, and it's not game research. So, the difference between uh, games research and playtesting is more so that we're looking at gameplay and game mechanics uh, in our playtests. We're looking for some feedback, as well as people just playing the game and giving us their experience. We're not really specifically looking for bugs, um, per se, but... We're looking to gather their first impressions on a game or a game idea or mechanic or some part of a game that we're currently developing. 
Um, games research, on the other hand, is kind of a step before that. And what I mean is that we have teams that look at um, the game space. They do competitive analyses uh, of other games that are out there. And this is more on the R&D side of things when they're getting ready to uh, maybe add a feature to a game or create a, a brand new game. Um, Playtesting is generally, in terms of our production cycle, one of the last things that happens um, in games user research uh, begins before playtesting. User research is all about finding the ideal way to experience a game. It's not really about level design or even testing new ideas. It's making sure that everything around the game works. They assess if the interface is simple, whether the game feels fair, and whether the controls are comfortable. One of the big things that user research tries to get down to the bottom is telling the story of the consumer or the user of the software. Um, too many times, um, especially with more senior and, and veteran developers, do we find that people have a certain development style and they tend to um, develop in a, a kind of rhythmic and routine way a lot of times. Once you become successful in, this, in, in developing stuff over and over again, you probably begin to think that you also have a really good design sense. Well, um, the pitfall of that is you might be designing something that you like, but your user base or audience may not appreciate as much as you. Uh, for example, I used to work in a, a small startup company uh, with two ex-Microsoft architects, which is a title that we don't have at Microsoft anymore, but they were pretty high-ranking uh, anyway. Um, and we were trying to design a mobile uh, or a virtual trading platform for goods and services for real money, like World of Warcraft trading gold or something or some sword for, for real-life currency. And one of the things is uh, he had all these steps that really made sense to him. But when we put it in front of our potential user, they were completely lost, right? And uh, sometimes there's some assumptions that are made, even though they may seem like no-brainers, um, that are simply not true. And especially if you've been in, in a domain um, or a niche for so long, those assumptions become even like bad habits, you know? And so user research helps validate either good design or places where it needs to improve a lot or change or come from a different perspective. There's both quantitative and qualitative stuff that we can do to to learn about people's experience. We uh, A lot of times the format is like this. So we'll welcome people in as a group. Usually we'll schedule like 20 or so people. Um, we'll invite them into individual cubicles in the same room um, and let them play through the game on their own at their own pace, at, you know, exploring things as they will. Um, for generally about an hour. And then uh, we'll give them a survey, which will give us some quantified information. Um, and then some, in some not, not as common instances, we might actually have surveys pop up as they're doing things in the game, right? So maybe they completed a quest in some Fable game, and uh, something will pop up asking them to quantify that experience. How fun was it? Uh, how relevant was it to the storyline, etc.? Um, they'll go through these surveys, either in-game or in front of them, uh, they're usually like post-task as well. And then at the end of our hour period, we usually do a focus group uh, where we get everyone together in small groups of five, maybe. So if it's 20 people, four groups. Um, and we'll kind of walk through a group think exercise where they tell us their experience, what they liked and didn't like. Um, but I would say also that focus groups are interesting because when you bring into a group dynamic, you start getting folks that um, maybe start um, slanting the group's opinion to one side or they're more vocal than other people. So um, sometimes what ends up happening 
is that um, we have people that lead uh, a discussion which may not reflect the entire group. Um, so you have to be kind of wary about focus groups in that way. But what makes the whole thing tricky is how they get that information. Most of the time, it's hard data. How many times did they click the X button? How long did it take them to finish the area? So what would be an example of um, quantitative? So like qualitative would just be you people talking about what they thought of the game. Um, where would you get the qualitative of a quantitative data from? So quantitative data can come from a, a lot of different places. Um, one of them is straight from metrics from uh, a game or uh, like say, for instance, a kill to death ratio, the, how long they were able to stay alive, um, different measurable um, things like that. Uh, we also have a lot of Likert scale questions that are like on a scale of one to five. That gives us quantitative stuff. Um, we have time to task, uh, especially when we're trying to have see if people can discover things. We also have uh, eye tracking metrics. Um, a lot of times we'll have gaze tracking, so we see where people are looking. Those are all can be considered quantitative data. Um, and we try to, our executives and the people doing development, it's kind of funny because you realize that pe folks that are ad developers um, are used to coding and they're very much um, a logical type of person, right? So quantitative metrics really resonate well with them. So if we want to drive change in a positive direction, uh, it's really good to give the, the developers this quantitative rigid data. Um, and then we usually use the qualitative stuff for color and, and flavor and to kind of help paint a better a picture uh, for people as to why this may occur or what their opinions are. But it's a little tougher when they start asking for qualitative data. Players aren't the best at describing what they experience. You can only get so much from that game was fun. So without getting, uh, without shedding, pulling back the curtains too much, um, the, the response to how fun was something is, isn't so, honestly, isn't as useful as one may think for us. It's more of a way to get that question out of the way. We don't really, we ask people, how fun was this, right? But really we're looking at other indicators like engagement, how long were they playing, how long were they focused, um, what other behaviors may actually translate into that fun rating. Um, but we do ask that just as a general litmus test, but it's not uh, something that we're going to go to the bank with. And based on your time at Xbox, has there any overarching lessons that you can impart to people working in games? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest things is we, we have this um, kind of Hippocratic Oath kind of mentality where we need our data. We need people to do certain things for us, especially when we're doing like machine learning. But we want everyone to walk out with a positive experience so that they'll come back and do more stuff for us in the future. Um, especially because Microsoft, we have uh, an internal testing pool. We only usually do uh, testing with um, or user research with Microsoft employees because of uh, NDA and legal issues. It's just easier to use internal people. We, we need them to come back. Uh, we have, like, for instance, rules that we have in place specifically for playtesting with kids that are you know, if a kid gets frustrated or cries, that's the end of the that's the end of the session. Get them candy and and swag immediately. You know, like we want them to um, have a positive experience. That's the bottom line. Thank you again so much. No problem, I mean, I really appreciate it. Anatoly Chen works at Xbox User Research at Microsoft. So last week, a new arcade opened in the Robarts Library. 
Although there were no pinball machines or even an arcade cabinet. Nope, we're talking about an accessibility arcade for people with disabilities. The arcade is a part of University of Toronto's Semaphore Research Cluster and was made with the help of Mark Barlet. So the Accessibility Arcade is an awesome room at the University of Toronto that has some of the latest and greatest accessible game equipment so that people with disabilities can come and play video games and look for different ways to play video games that they might not have at home. So for instance, what are the ones that you have, uh, the one that's right closest to us right here? So we have the Adroit Switchblade, which is a um, partnership development between Able Gamers and Evil Controllers out of Tempe, Arizona in the United States. And it's a, uh, it's a basically an interface or a platform that allows that interfaces with the Xbox but it allows people with disabilities to use various types of switches um, that they might have available to them to build a controller that works best for their needs. So for instance um, what kind of disability would this be helpful for? Or So this, this particular controller is really looking at people with um, advanced muscular dystrophy, um, spinal, spinal muscular atrophies, which is another type of MD, multiple sclerosis, um, even CPs, if you start getting into more advanced CPs. So the, the Adroit Switchblade really is kind of a advanced setup. And now you have two games here on, this, on display. They're both puzzle games. Um, why in particular have those? Well, the puzzle games are really good for an open event like this because they're transactional. You know, we, don't, we want a lot of people to try the technology for, for the demo event. So we want something that you can play for a few minutes, get a feel for the technology, but you don't have to have closure versus, you know, if we had Elder Scrolls on there and you would just want to know what happened next and you wouldn't be able to leave. So we just have the puzzle games, the more casual games on here for the, for the sake of just the crowd of people that we've been having. So how would say something like this compa- like how would this work for say an Elder Scrolls? Also well, for an Elder Scrolls, um, I would suggest using the PC if you're a person with disabilities and you're wanting to play Elder Scrolls. Um, but what you would do is you would just use some um, different switches that you have available or that you buy online that fit your needs, and you would plug them into the platform, map the switches to the various keystrokes that you need, and then you would just play. So it really is just you know being able to customize a controller to fit your needs. Mark has opened a couple of these in the United States, but this is the first one of its kind in Canada. Part of why he's starting these arcades is that it's personal. His sister has multiple sclerosis. But also, one in five American game players are disabled. That's according to Mark's charity, Babel Gamers. That's about 65 million people in the United States who have problem using the regular controllers. So the arcade has a bunch of controllers specifically designed for people with disabilities. How did you guys get started with the accessibility arcades? Well, it's funny. So we had the, the idea of the accessibility arcade actually came from... We had a couple of people within our forums who had bought technology that they saw online and got into their homes, and the technology wasn't going to work for them. And they were kind of bummed because they had kind of saved up and spent a couple of hundred dollars, and they're like, this doesn't work for us. So it kind of gave us this idea, wouldn't it be cool if we had a lending library, some kind of library that people could like check stuff out of, try it at home? We were talking to a, a woman who ran the Adaptive Services Division of the D.C. Public Library named Venetia Dempson. And we told her about our idea about partnering with libraries and, and people could check them out. And she said, that's a terrible idea. And I said, what? She goes, that was a terrible idea. She's like, you can't hand over equipment like this to someone without some kind of training because you're just going to create more frustration. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting observation. She said, so why don't we just bring it into the library? We have the staff. We're working with people who are already a natural hub for people with disabilities anyway. So why don't we just bring it in here and, and, and you can have the same basic try before you buy, learn aspect, but you can do it in a much more controlled way. And we thought it was a brilliant idea. And they worked really hard and found the funding and brought the first, first ever accessible library in. 
So um, Able Gamers has helped build an accessibility arcade in the Washington, D.C. Martin Luther King Jr. Public Library. It was our very first. Um, there is one in the Brooklyn Public Library. They're expanding it to um, the Brooklyn school system. Um, we've expanded some of the concepts into the D.C. school system. And we are in talks right now to look at uh, Chicago and San Francisco as maybe some next locations for a, an accessibility arcade. And then obviously the first one in Canada here is at the University of Toronto. So how do they compare to kind of what we have on display right now? What's really interesting and I think what is going to be great about the University of Toronto is the extending of, of the devices. So this is just really the base model. But, you know, the University of Toronto and um, Semaphore have a lab upstairs where they have access to 3D printers and an amazing a group of, of technologists and students. So, I mean, frankly, what we're doing here today is probably nothing compared to what's going to look like in even six months when some of these grad students get a hold of the platforms and some of the, the use cases that, that start coming in here. I'm super excited to see what uh, uh, this is, you know, an institute of higher learning, which is what this is, really does to this, to this uh, arcade. Um, how does the one in D.C. look? So the D1 in D.C. is a part of their adaptive services division. It looks very similar. I would think that the main, I think, differentiator is that they're using the technology and they're not extending very far beyond the technology because that's not really their, their practice. It's a, they're a true um, accessible, you know, services library. While here at the University of Toronto, again, there's like this beautiful maker space upstairs that I think is going to like change the thought process in a matter of just months. Now, with um, some of these games, what makes a game perhaps more accessible to, uh, to people with disabilities? Flexibility. So a game that creates more flexibility in how it's controlled can become more accessible because it allows me to choose how I control the game. I also think a lot of games that are coming out right now are just like overly complex buttons for the sake of being overly complex, and it's kind of unnecessary. But, but really, flexibility. Let me remap keys. Let me put things where I can put them, and then we'll be fine. Now, the examples you have here are more for physical disabilities, things that, um, problems with motion. Um, what kind of technologies would have to be for, say, blindness or um, deafness? Well, for, for, for the deaf community, you know, I don't think gaming is too, too difficult for most of my deaf friends because um, most games do a pretty good job now of closed captioning in one way or the other. And, you know, there are visual cues that, that match the audio cues of, of something in the game. Um, Microsoft actually is kind of a forefront on that because they have the sleeping baby use case when they test games. They discovered that most of the people that play their games are in their mid-30s. They're males, and they probably have a baby upstairs sleeping. And if they yell or their game wakes up the baby, their wife is going to destroy them. So uh, they make games that are more... Um, They've, they've put in the features that are needed so that the gamer understands what's going on without sound. And, and for the totally blind community, um, you know, there's not a lot of mainstream or AAA games that are audio only, and I think we, would all, we all know that. But um, the rise of the indie market, the rise of the, um, you know, the Android operating system and the tablets and the, and the iPads and things like that allow a much lower cost of entry for creating a game and bringing it to market than ever before. And I'm seeing a lot more audio-only games than I've ever seen because of that level, leveling that the uh, indie market's able to do. If I'm a developer, what's an easy way to get, make my game more accessible? Oh, that's easy. You should go download the Includification Guide from the Able Gamers Foundation. It won the DaVinci Award in 2013, and you can find it at includification.com or gameaccessibility.org. And it's a free 
47-page uh, illustrated guide that has level one, two, and three on the different modalities. And there's really no excuse why you can't, uh, anyone can't achieve level one of accessibility according to that document. All right. Thank you so much thank for your time. You. Take care. Have a good day. But not, he's not the, but he's not the only one working on the arcade. Sarah Grimes is an assistant professor at the Information School. This is actually her first foray into working with games. Mark has a lot of expectations, it seems, of what this place could become in five, ten years. Um, what does the what does the, the Semaphore Lab hope to do with the, the arcade in, going into the future? Right. Well, we're all about collaboration, and we're all about um, creating research that's going to have like applicability to people, to users, um, and especially to users that are oftentimes excluded from technology, either because of the design or because of the way it's implemented or because of where it's located. Um, and so we're really keen on working with different groups, including game developers as well as gamers who have disabilities or who want to play with uh, friends who have disabilities and who want to explore different ways of utilizing the technology as well as pushing it farther. Um, one of the cool things about Semaphore is that we have uh, different uh, kinds of tech like 3D printers so we do have like this potential to create new controllers and new devices and new kind of attachments to some of the technology that Mark brought up which he's really excited about and we are too. Um, the potential to work with different people is really what excites me. Um, different needs that they might bring to the table or different projects that they might bring or different ideas and uh, working with them to see what we can what we can make of it. So I think because there's so much flexibility in where we can go, Mark is excited about what it's going to result in. Mark Barlet is the founder of the Able Gamers Foundation and is based in West Virginia. Sarah Grimes is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. when you're playing a 3D world and you notice that things just don't feel right. The walls have this repeating pattern, the beds are all tucked, the plants are too neatly placed. It feels sterile, like you could cook an egg on the floor, which happens to all be this one flat texture. These are all features of bad environmental design. Kate Craig works at the Fulbright Company. Her last game was Gone Home. Dear Katie, I'm sorry I can't be there to see you. I'm... I'm just sorry. In Gone Home, you explore this Victorian-style mansion trying to discover what's happened to your family. That's the house that Kate built. She built the walls, the 3D objects, and everything inside it, aside from 2D art. Well, we have an initial plan of kind of what the house is going to look like. And then that sort of changes over time based upon the needs of the story, because the story is sort of the most flexible thing in some ways. But um, So we had a, a, um, a basic layout for the house, and I would make the pieces of the house, um, so like the walls are actually sort of like Lego pieces that sort of snap together. Um, and then Steve Gaynor, um, the level designer, would actually put the house together. So the actual creation of the house in Unity in the game engine was Steve's doing. So the flow and all that is something that he controls as a level designer, which it's, you know, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes um, level designers and uh, environment artists work kind of closer together, but because we were working in different countries, that was the way we did it. But um uh, yeah, so I'll build the pieces, and then I will send them to Steve, and then Steve will put together the house. How much back and forth was there between you and Steve on how the house should be built? Um, well, we talked together every day. I mean, I was working in uh, Vancouver, and he was working in Portland, and we would talk on 
chat or sometimes he would call up and uh, we would talk about um, the size of certain rooms or where rooms needed to be located. At one point, the one of the secret passages went from the office to the, the landing. And I think everyone decided it's not scary when you have um, a secret passage that goes to a landing. So we made it go to the closet of the bedroom, instantly scarier. Um, but yeah, I mean, we would talk pretty much daily about things that needed to be built or areas that needed improvement. I remember I kept telling him, smaller, smaller, you need to make the rooms smaller. Um, I can only build so much. Uh, so, you know, that was basically what I talked to him about the most was, you know, stop making so many, many, so many things and so big. So tone it down. What was the size also a factor of the fact that, I mean, Victorian houses, the rooms are a little smaller unless they're like massive dining rooms. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the size of the house was based on in video games, a, a room will have to be, um, larger just to, to, yet to fit the character and the camera in there. And it gets sort of, it's why like video game doors are so, um, huge generally. If you walk into any game and look at the door in a video game, it's, it's huge. Um, but it was just that the house, the concept for it was that so many people had lived into in, in it and it had been expanded and sort of renovated and, um, you know, added to um, over the years. So it just became this sprawling sort of eccentric building. And it was supposed to be eccentric in the way that the previous owner was um, was sort of, I guess, eccentric. Um, and that his personality is reflected in the actual structure of the house. So that he was a hermit and, um, you know, very private. And the house was sort of indicative of his, his personality, I suppose. Do you... F- how effective do you think you were at conveying that? Well, I mean, some things I think we were pretty good, and others, I mean, maybe not. It's, it's. <laughs> I think if you ask any sort of artist about past projects, they will have areas that just you know drive them nuts. And 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 there there are still certain rooms that I think we did um, well, and other rooms where I would really like to have pushed things a bit more. Um, um, I think the basement was pretty good even though it's mostly just boxes. But, like, the music room, it was supposed to be a music room, and I just didn't have the time to make it, um, you know, really reflect Dad's personal music tastes as much as I would have liked to. If I had more time, you know, go in and maybe add a piano or or, uh, more stuff on the walls or better rugs and things like that. Now, environmental art can seem simple. You're just building a house with things like lamps, beds, and desks. You're not making people. But Kate feels like it's one of the most creative fields out there. Within 3D art, there's this idea that character art is like the, uh, that's where the fun is. It's where all the hero pieces are. That's where it's, everyone wants to be a character artist or a concept artist because that's where all the creativity and is. And, and environment art is you're just sort of making these, you know, um, sort of quotidian pieces. Um, but I really enjoy that because those little day-to-day pieces end up being these environments and these environments to me are more uh, evocative and more sort of um, interesting than just like a a character to work on. Like if you make a character and you do a really good job, it's wonderful, but you can actually walk around an environment. So even though um, I may be making like a, you know, a grate or something like a garbage can, um, I know that it adds up to be, part of something bigger. So that's where I, you know, but I mean, it helps that I'm very like fussy and I like to make, um, 
this stuff. I don't know. It, it's some. It's boring for some people, but I really love it. I mean, most video game storytelling is actually ambient storytelling. It's being able to explore a world and string together a story based on your own experiences. And that that's really where your role shines. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was thinking about this today, about how a lot of the games that I loved, and most of the games that I love, are so heavy on just um, sort of environmental art in general um i mean the first game i i think i ever played was probably mist and which is only uh environment art and um even if you have something like uh like world of warcraft each zone that you go to is almost like a different character there's different feelings and whatnot and, and different atmospheres uh involved in each zone so i mean uh I just, I don't know, it's, some, it's just an area of art that I, I really love and is sometimes underappreciated, I think. But to me, it's the most important part, obviously. <laughs> is it noticeable for you when, uh, when a game does poor environmental art? Um, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, um, <laughs> it, it, poor environment art is, it, it sort of lacks personality, I think. I mean... A lot of the times when I'm wandering through games, they will do houses and whatnot, and um, the houses will feel personality-less, uh, I think. And you, you kind of get, you got to get that jank in a house. You got to get that sort of, um, you know, weirdness. There's a lot of stuff. If you looked around my house right now, there's a lot of stuff that sort of, you know, maybe there's socks on the floor or a plant that needs watering or something like this. And um, the pro- problem with uh, 3D art is that you can make things too perfect. And when you make a house too perfect, you sort of get that uncanny valley. This is supposed to be a house. This doesn't feel like a house. So, um, yeah, it does stand up to me, but I'm also very sympathetic to, to it because I know how hard it is to do extremely well. And, and, and also you have a lot of limitations. I could have poured more stuff into the house, but I just didn't have the time. Or the house in, in Gone Home, but we didn't have the time. Um, or sometimes the... Um, budgetary resources and that you know maybe you can't add any more polygons or textures to that scene so like i was playing um star wars the old republic a while ago probably last year Mm. and all of the bases that you go into in that game and then this is by you know it's necessary because you only in an mmo especially you only have a certain amount of resources like allotted to you um I was wandering around in the space and everything is where it should be and everything is very neat and everything. All the beds are made. Um, and it doesn't really take that much, I mean, to add a little bit more personality. Maybe make one of those beds not made. Um, you know, something is broken or chipped or um, uh, I tried to put some um, you know, socks and underwear on the floor in the house and gone home, but um, I guess I'm fixated on socks on the floor, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, just add, add, you have to go out of your way to sort of add those imperfections, make the plants a little, maybe one of them's kind of dying or something like this. Just throw in a bit of, um, you know, of that jank, for lack of a better term. Kate grew up with the game Riven. It's a sequel to the old adventure game Mist, where you explore a luscious island and solve puzzles. At the time, there weren't a whole lot of games that really appealed to me, because a lot of them were combat-heavy, um... And the idea that you could go into a space that was sort of, some of the levels of in Riven were just sort of zen. Some of them weren't. Some of them were a little bit more stressful. But um, I, I liked Riven because it liked me, I guess, in that it wasn't about to attack me and um, 
you know, it was, it didn't feel especially, I guess, aggressive towards me and I could just take my time in it and just hang out and, and, uh, you know, play with frogs or whatever it is that you do in, in that game. Um, so I just, at the time I, I just, I needed a game that was going to let me chill out and, and Riven was really good for that. And at least from what I remember, I haven't played it in probably a decade or so. Are there any areas that you find particularly memorable? Uh, yeah, the Island of the Wooden Eyes in Riven was a, um, um, do you remember that level at all? No, I never played Riven, unfortunately. What? What? <laughs> okay, so it was really good. It was like this tropical, beautiful island, and I got that game for Christmas, actually, and it was Christmas here in Ontario, which is, can be kind of garbagey at times, so outside it was just this awful weather, and inside I'm, you know, sitting inside being 13, 14, and whenever that game came out, and... Uh, playing this beautiful tropical island. He's got these cool little huts, and everything is sunny and gorgeous, and there's, like, turquoise water. Um, so that island in particular, that, that level, was something that always sort of stood out to me as, like, it can make you feel really good, um, the, This you know, depending on how an environment is, is, is built. I want there to be more personality in, in, in rooms and... and, and houses and buildings and things and games just because I feel like um, it's just I don't know the, the game environment levels are sometimes very personality less uh, a good example is even in the very first level of, of um, The Last of Us you really got a sense of Joel's character via his house via his bedroom you could tell that he was you know into playing the guitar and his daughter and he's maybe starting up a new business and whatnot and that's it stood out to me because you don't often see that um in homes and things in video games so uh i just i want there to be more of that kate craig is an environment artist at the fulbright company she'll be at the toronto comics art festival as a part of the comics versus game exhibition on may 10th at her panel That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm feature editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Anatoly Chen. Mark Barley. Sarah Grimes. And... Kate Craig. For extended versions of the interview you just heard, you can check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. But leave us a positive review, because if you leave us a negative review, we'll make you into a Microsoft reality TV show. We're usually in the air to Scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. And we run every Monday and Thursday also at that time, which is 1 p.m. if you missed that. And we update the site every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at Built to Play and me personally at Florcon. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And I think that show would be a reality show about two guys speaking to mics and the cops are about to bust down this door because of the terrible things we just said. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening.